Here's what's coming up on today's show. Taxes in retirement is complicated. From taxes on your retirement account distributions and Social Security income to minimizing taxes year after year, there's a lot to think about. So today, Mark and I will talk about the top 10 tax questions that retirees are asking in 2023. It's easy to get lost on the way to retirement. Things like taxes, improper planning, and excessive market risk can all lead you astray from your goal of a successful and happy retirement. That's where Liz Whittaberry comes in. She's a holistic financial advisor and the founder of Best Path Advisors, and she can help guide you to a better financial path. This is Retire on Your Best Path with Liz Whittaberry. Welcome into this edition of Retire on Your Best Path with Liz Whittaberry and myself to talk about the top 10 tax questions for retirees in 2023. And we're going to run through these. We've got a good list here for you. We're going to try to break down. And if you've got questions or concerns, as always, make sure you're checking in with a qualified professional like Liz, uh, who is the founder and financial advisor at Best Path Advisors. Find her online at bestpathadvisors.com. That's bestpathadvisors.com. Liz, how are you? I am good. I'm good. And this is uh, one of my favorite topics, taxation, because I like to help retirees minimize their taxes. That's a big focus of my planning practice. Mm -hmm. I didn't tell you this before we got started recording, but uh, I've just enrolled in a master's in taxation. So announcing that for the first time right here. Well, congratulations. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, that's how important I feel this is. Well, you know what? And we appreciate it because taxation is something it could be, you know, a huge component to our retirement strategy. Right. So, uh, you know, the old saying is not what you make, it's what you keep. Right. So, yes, we want to make sure we're being efficient. So we got a lot on this list. Let's just dive in, shall we? You bet. All right. Number one, uh, Liz, what are the tax implications of withdrawing money from retirement accounts. This is hugely important because not every account is the same and and your income levels are going to affect number two we're going to get to in just a second. But what are those implications? Absolutely. So when you reach retirement, you should have basically three buckets of money from a tax perspective. You've got your tax deferred. That's your IRAs, your 401ks. You You put money in. You didn't pay tax on the money as it went in. But now you will pay tax on that money when it comes out and that will be taxed at ordinary income rates, which is anywhere from 10% to 37%, depending on your bracket. The second bucket of money would be the taxable bucket. You didn't get any tax advantages for, say, this is just your checking, your savings, your regular brokerage account. Interest on that is taxed as ordinary income, just like we talked about a minute ago, but you get the capital gains rates on things that you buy or sell in that taxable bucket. And that's a preferential rate. So you may be taxed anywhere from 0% up to 20% on those capital gains. And then your last bucket is the tax-free. That would be your Roth IRA, your Roth 401k, your health savings account. Uh, You don't pay tax on those dollars when they come out. You know, of course, if you're following the rules, but that's the goal. So Three different types of taxation, and that tax deferred, the IRA, 401k, has that highest tax cost to it. Okay. And, and like I was mentioning, so you you got to think about how you're withdrawing money for your income because it could affect number two, which is can and will Social Security benefits be taxed? 
Yeah, absolutely. And for most of my clients, they're going to be taxed at 85% of their Social Security benefits. And that is the maximum Social Security benefit that's going to be taxed. It's based on what is called your modified adjusted gross income. So you're taking your adjusted gross income from your tax return, you're adding back half of the Social Security that you're receiving, you're adding back your tax-exempt interest. So if you've invested in municipal bonds to get that tax-exempt interest, you have to add that back and then compare it to the thresholds. And the thresholds are very low because they have never been increased since the time this was put in law in the 80s. Uh, and the bottom threshold is 25000 for a single filer, 32000 for married filing jointly. So it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take much to get to that bottom threshold. At that point, you're paying tax on 50% of your Social Security. Uh, the second threshold is 34000 for a single filer, 44000 for married filing jointly. And once you hit that, you're paying tax on 85% of Social Security benefits, but you never pay tax on more than 85% of your benefits. Okay. All right. So that's something we certainly got to keep in mind when it comes to taxation. Uh, number three, does the taxation of pension uh, does that differ? Can, is that taxed? I, I've heard that different states are different ways. Uh, what do we need to know regarding pension income? Well, being here in Texas, we don't have a state income tax, and uh, that is a that's a good benefit for living in Texas. But pension income is taxed as ordinary income. It comes in, you know, just like you would receive wages during your working years. Okay. It, it doesn't have Social Security and Medicare charged on it, but you're just paying your ordinary income tax rates on pension income. Okay. So that was at the for, federal level. At the federal level. All right. Um, at least for Texas anyway. <laughs> so. Yes. Now, yeah. Other states are different. Some some don't tax it. Some do. Yeah. Uh, I'm not an expert on that because most of my clients uh, are paying income tax in the state of Texas. Yeah. So you want to definitely double check if you're checking out the podcast and you're someplace else. We'll want to double check the area in which you're in to see if there's anything state by state because there are some differences uh, clearly. All right. So number four, how does the uh, the Secure Act and maybe even the Secure Act 2.0 and, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, Liz, affect possible you know retirement income and taxation? The big change is that required minimum distributions are delayed. So they've pushed that required starting out age further out. You know, we've gone from seventy and a half. Then with Secure Act in 2019, we went to 72. Now with Secure Act 2.0, we're at age 73 or 75, depending on the year you're born. So just a little bit further, uh, a little few more years before you have to start that required minimum distribution. That doesn't mean that you should delay taking funds from those tax deferred to that point in time. You want to do some strategic planning to determine what's going to be the best over your retirement years, but uh, you do have a little bit more time before you are required to do that. Yeah, the Secure Act changes this year, obviously, there's some some pretty big ones, and so being able to push back those RMDs uh, depending on your age, you know, can be a big, a big bonus as well and give you more time to strategize, which we talked about in our prior podcast on that. Uh, number five, any special tax deductions or credits available for retirees, Liz? You know, with us being under the current tax code, uh, most of us don't get any, you know, don't itemize now. Is there anything outside of that that's like uh, special for retirees? Anybody that is 65 and older gets an additional standard deduction. Oh, okay. 
And if you're married filing jointly, that's 1,500, so 1,500 per person. If you're a single filer, that's 1,850 in 2023. And that's a significant thing. With our standard deduction as high as it is, and then you add that additional deduction for being 65 and older, Mm -hmm. it is hard to have enough deductions to itemize. Very difficult to itemize. Um, That could change, Liz, right? When we go back, if nothing gets done, right? If Congress does nothing uh, in 26, we go back to the prior, you know, uh, tax code, and then we're back to itemizing again. So could that possibly change for folks at that point? The standard deduction will be cut roughly in half. We'll get the personal exemption back. Right. And what I am telling my clients is, yes, it may make sense at that point in time to itemize. You may be able to get a bigger benefit itemizing. Uh, there's going to be a lot of things to consider. A lot of my clients are doing the qualified charitable distributions, which when you do the qualified charitable distribution, then you don't use those charitable gifts as an itemized deduction. You can't double dip and count it Mm. as both things. And so that's going to be some questions that we'll need to look at on a case-by-case basis to say, where do you end up with the very least tax for this year? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that's that we won't know anything on that until whether they do something beforehand or 2026 before they make any changes and go back to the way that was. Yeah. So uh, for right now, right, it's just the same as it has been. So we were talking about Texas a minute ago. So what about the uh, idea, this is number six, that taxes could change for folks? Should they consider moving from you know one state to another? Obviously, we tend to think of the snowbird thing, right? Somebody moving from a, a cold state to a warm state. But I mean, obviously, you guys have been gotten a lot of people from California, high tax state to you know not. So what are the, some thoughts there? Yeah, I think you want to look at the state you're in, what your state income tax is, the state you're moving to, what your state income tax will be. I've certainly had people move from a state with no tax here in Texas moved to another state that does have an income, a state income tax, mm-hmm. uh, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, some of the states that, you know, where they like the area. Yeah. And it's worth paying the state income tax to live in that area. Texas is one of nine states that does not have a state income tax. And so for somebody that's moving from a high state income tax to Texas or Florida, where there is no state income tax, that can be a savings on their overall tax cost, but it's not the only reason to consider. Sure. Um, And then you want to look at, you know, how tax-friendly is it? Interesting to me, Alaska is the most tax-friendly state. Really? Yes. They were number one on on this recent list because they're um, no state income tax, no estate tax, no inheritance tax, and their sales tax (laughs) average is less than 2%. Right. Which here in in Texas, we're at eight and a quarter. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> they, so they they're make trying it a, to pull people in. Exactly. Yes. They got to make it appealing. They're like, hey, come yes. on up here. And, and uh, it's cold, but we'll make it cheap for you. So, uh, but it's beautiful as well. So yes. There you go. Yeah. And, and if you wanted to be near the snow, near the mountains, near the water where you could do the fishing, yeah, that would be a perfect place. Just take your parka. Or 12. (laughs) Uh, All right. So let's go to number seven. Any tax benefits? Actually, you kind of touched on QCDs a minute ago for making charitable contributions in retirement. Uh, So is there anything else in that arena besides just doing QCDs? Yeah, just thinking 
about that as you turn 70 and a half and older? Is it better to send my charitable contributions from my IRA directly to my church or whatever other charitable organization that I'm supporting? Mm -hmm. Is that a better way to do it? And for a lot of people, it can be. Yeah. Because then those dollars never have any tax paid on them. And it doesn't even account against your modified adjusted gross income. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. That you. impacts yeah. your Social Security, that impacts your Medicare ERM. It doesn't even play into those formulas. So you win in more than one way. People can also do donor advised funds, and that could be something we could talk about in some detail in a different podcast. Okay. Uh, and that can be another way to get tax free benefit from those dollars and benefit some charities at the same time. Okay. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the fact that it helps with, uh, you know, with the income levels. And, and certainly we can go back and revisit donor advised funds on another podcast. That's a great idea as well. So does that also apply to my next one, which is number eight, tax considerations for gifting money to children or grandchildren? What is it, like 17 grand, I think you can give? It is this year. But does, This year's. That doesn't reduce your income, though, right? It's different than the other that you just were explaining. So, like, if you're giving money to your correct. kids, you don't get to take it off your income level. That is correct. And okay. I, I do have people ask me, can they do that? And, in fact, I had somebody send me a message uh, just within the last week or so that they had been told mm-hmm. that a friend had told them that you could give to your grandkids and you could uh, deduct it on your tax return. And I said, no, your friend is, is sadly mistaken. <laughs> you cannot do that. Right. You don't have to pay income tax on the gift. They don't have to pay income tax on the gift. Nobody pays income tax on the gift if you're within your gift tax exclusion. So that annual 17000 per person. If you're a married couple, you can double that, 34000 per person. Once you go over that limit, then you begin to dip into your lifetime exclusion, mm-hmm. which right now is nearly 13 million. So it's, yeah, it's a big, big number. Hit, yeah. That's going to get cut in half when, T- when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expires. And at that point in time, it could impact some people relative to the state size and the gifting that they're doing. And so you do have to file a gift tax return to report those gifts if they're over and above that annual limit. If you ever go over your lifetime exclusion, then you pay the gift tax rate on that, which is 40%. It's a very you know high tax Ouch, rate. yeah. The giver pays it, not the person that gets the gift. Mm, okay. Well, that's certainly a good tax tip as well. Uh, all right. So we're going through the top 10 tax questions for retirees. That was eight. Let's go to number nine, Liz. Uh, tax issues. Uh, we, we talk a lot about the individual. So obviously you're a business owner. Any tax issues with starting a small or side business in retirement? Many retirees get to this point and they, they want to do uh, something small. Like they have a little side hustle, as we call it nowadays, right? Yeah. Or consult back to their industry sure, or yeah. teach, do some education uh, because they've got a lot of uh, experience and knowledge that they've accumulated. If you earn income, in any format, the IRS wants you to report it and pay income tax on it. So if you're doing a small side business, you're going to have to report that on your tax return. That can be just as simple as a Schedule C that you include with your personal return. Or if you set up an entity, an LLC, uh, then you would have to potentially file a entity return depending on 
you know, exactly what entity you set up. Here in Texas, the LLC is a pass-through entity, and so that can still be reported on a Schedule C, which makes it very easy uh, to report that. But bottom line, if you earn income, you're going to have to pay income tax on your profit, or you can report your loss if you ended up having a loss because you spent more in your expenses than than you made from the business. Yeah. That can happen in the first few years. Now, for retirees or whatever, getting into a, doing a small business or, or even pre-retirees, make sure that it's not just a hobby that you're trying to write off ex- exemptions from, right? Because you know, at some point, you, you got to show that you're making some money, right? So you can't yeah. just constantly go, oh, I lost money. <laughs> oh, I lost money. It doesn't, after a while, they kind of go, they, hmm. they will, yes. Yeah. yeah. They start They'll tell you that you can't, you can't deduct that. Can't do that no more. All right. Uh, number 10, let's make it dealer's choice. Uh, what uh, might you have on, uh, on the docket that I missed or that we should cover? Well, the main question that I'm getting at this point in time is, should I do a Roth conversion? And everybody is very interested in that. There's a lot of news uh, around that, uh, news reporting. Everyone knows that our income taxes are low, that our income tax rates are going to go up. At some point in time, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act will expire and it'll go up then, but it could go up even more depending on what changes uh, get written into law. Everyone is concerned about the amount of government debt we have, the amount of interest payments that that is creating, especially as interest rates are going up. So people are asking this question, should I convert my tax-deferred money to a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k, and should I do it now while tax rates are lower? And there's no one-size-fits-all. You know, some people benefit from conversion, some people benefit from a big conversion, some people benefit from strategic, you know, very tactical conversions over a number of years. Some people benefit from keeping their money in the tax deferred bucket. And it, it's going to depend on their current tax rate and their future tax rate. What are those going to look like over their lifetime? What are the tax rates that their heirs are going to be in tax brackets they'll be in when they inherit this money? And so just doing that analysis um, to know what's the best thing for them. What's the best Um, strategy, right? Because you want to do this efficiently, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I recently had a conversation, a couple that had had an advisor for many years, and they're 65. They don't have any Roth money. And I told them, you know, you really should at a minimum convert a small amount this year. They have Z, no Roth money anywhere. Mm-hmm. Convert a small amount this year and get that five-year clock ticking. And Oh, yeah, that's a good point. And they said, I, I wonder why we haven't been told this before. You know, we, mm-hmm. we could have done this five years ago. Yeah. I had another um, conversation with someone who has an advisor for 15 years, and after he watched my taxes and retirement webinar, he circled back to his advisor and said, should I do Roth conversions? And he just hit his required minimum distribution age. And the advisor said, it's too late, which I don't believe it's too late. Yeah, mm. But it does change the formula when right. you have required minimum distributions. But the question would then be, well, why didn't we then talk about this before it was too late? No, exactly. Um, and that's I mean, that's the point of, of working with someone who's helping you in all facets of retirement, right? Not yeah. just the accumulation. Looking at the uh, 
taxes as well as the investments and the retirement income and all of the all of the different pieces. So I certainly believe that they all work together and that tax planning is an extremely important part and it needs to be done on an ongoing basis each and every year, planning for that year and planning on a forward-looking basis for the years that are ahead of us. Yep. Well, it is tax season as we started off by saying, kicking this thing off here uh, with the top tax tips. But Remember, it's not just the annual thing we got to do. That was Liz's point, right? We want to make sure that we're, especially as we're being as efficient as we can, as we're getting close to retirement and through retirement, it's tax planning uh, all throughout the year and forward-looking, not just tax prep, which is that annual got to deal with the IRS thing. So get yourself onto the calendar. If you need some help, reach out to a qualified professional like Liz. Hopefully um, you got some uh, good tips here along the way on this podcast. And don't forget you can find her online at bestpathadvisors.com. That's bestpathadvisors.com, and uh, you can reach out to her that way. Liz, thanks for hanging out. Anything else before we go? That is it. I just always like to say we are here to help you be on your best path. Absolutely. And you can catch more episodes by subscribing to us on Apple, Google, Spotify, whatever podcasting platform app you like to find or use, you should say. And uh, and you can find it all on bestpathadvisors.com. For Liz Whittaberry, I'm your host, Mark. We'll catch you next time here on the program. This has been Retire on Your Best Path. The preceding program is sponsored by Best Path Advisors, which is solely responsible for its content. Securities offered through J.W. Cole Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through J.W. Cole Advisors. Best Path Advisors, J.W. Cole Financial, and J.W. Cole Advisors are unaffiliated entities. The opinions expressed by Liz Whitberry should not be construed as specific tax, legal, or investment advice, nor as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Neither J.W. Cole Financial nor its representatives provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Persons who provide such advice do so in a capacity other than as a registered representative of J.W. Cole. Investing is subject to risks, including the loss of principal. Due to volatility within the markets mentioned, opinions are subject to change without notice. Information is based on sources believed to be reliable. However, their accuracy or completeness cannot be guaranteed.